Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Mr. Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going? Tired. You look tired and hot. Yeah, I'm well, I mean, I've been on a heater, baby. What does that mean? I just, I've been selling everything, man. I have been getting leads all day from the full scale website. I'm glad we built that thing. We need to, I don't know. <laughs> we need to what? We should start, know. You know what we need? We need to start another business. No, we don't. But, you know, speaking of businesses, didn't you used to have one that was related to auto? I, w- I did. I did. I was an automotive. Okay. And uh, I think we brought some guests in today that uh, um, are also in the automotive industry. Would you want to introduce our guests today? Yeah, all the way from Silicon Valley. We have a couple guys here from Sully Automotive. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Got into Casey last night. Excited to be here. Very excited to be here as well. So you should probably go ahead and let everyone know who they are yeah, as well. Yeah, that would probably be pretty good. Okay. So we have Zach, who's the CEO of Sully. And then we have Ryan, um, who's, how would you describe yourself? You're the, what is your title? Um, I, my official title is VP of product, but I basically manage engineering and products. He does all the stuff that Zach doesn't want to do. <laughs> and then a whole lot of other stuff too, maybe. Kind of sounds like us. What I do all the stuff you don't want to do, yeah. and then you lay on my couch. Yeah, and I'm the VP of product. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, we're kind of behind the scenes VP of product. Hey, you know, uh, having a great business partner is a pretty important thing. How's that going with you guys? No, it's going well. I think Ryan really uh, balances me out. You know, I'm more focused on business development, you know, sales, marketing. Ryan does a great job with product and engineering. Actually, making the shit work. <laughs> Trying to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, that's like hard. our relationship. I have to make this shit actually work. Whoa! <laughs> oh my god! Which part? <laughs> oh. Um. So, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about selling and what you guys do? How you got started? How'd you get into this? Yeah. So, when I was going to Emory University, I was looking for a part-time job, and I found a local car dealership. Started selling cars, and I really fell in love with the business. And I also saw a lot of opportunity with software. You know, my dealership, they were using legacy technology. There was no buy-in from the sales team. So after graduating from Emory, I moved out to the Bay Area and started working on a mobile app for salespeople on the side while working for another company called Bright Edge. And then I got accepted into an accelerator program called Blue Startups. And Blue Startups is run by a guy named Hank Rogers. He's the guy behind Tetris, the video game. And they were our first check. We put out, you know, a mobile app for salespeople. We had some traction on that, but we really discovered there was a bigger opportunity with dealership software for independents. They're the most underserved segment of the market. And independents, they're used car dealers. They're not selling new cars. They're not a Ford dealership. They're, you know, Bob Joe's used cars. And our advisor at Blue Startups actually brought 
Ryan to me and introduce Ryan to Sally. And I'll let Ryan take it from well, there. Well, so so to, to expand on what you were just describing for our listeners that probably don't understand this, I think in the United States there's about 70,000 car dealers or people who have a, a dealer license all in the U.S. I think there's about 20,000 franchise dealers. And then there's about a 50,000 non-franchise dealers so it, some so of them, it's 20 and 50 or is that that or is it 140 total no it's 20 and 20 plus well, 50, i think there are 130,000 used car dealer licenses okay. but they're around 45,000 to 60,000 brick and mortar stores okay. and then with new car franchise dealers i think there's 17,800 so okay so now yeah, before, even idea. before we get too far ahead of ourselves here um, so you, you identified some opportunity and the ability to, to create software that would solve a specific problem at the dealership. Um, is that correct? Like what, what, when you first set out to build something, what was the problem that you guys were trying to solve? So the problem is, you know, salespeople, they don't follow up with their internet leads. Legacy technology doesn't resonate with them. And especially in the used car space where, you know, the price of dealership software is oftentimes their whole marketing budget. So we wanted to put together a simple, easy to use, lightweight solution that allows them to manage their sales processes like they're a new car store. So think about these independent stores as kind of like the small and medium-sized business market, right? Where the larger dealers would be more enterprise accounts and you have super large groups like AutoNation that are really the true enterprise account. So kind of like how Stackify is focused on small and medium-sized, you know, like that part of the segment, they're focused on the kind of small and medium-sized part of the segment. So my old company, Vin Solutions, is actually a competitor of theirs, but Vin Solutions plays more in the larger the larger dealers, the franchise dealers. Good thing you sold that so we don't have to do like an arm wrestling match. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that would be pretty awkward. Yeah, yeah it would be. <laughs> so, so question for Ryan. Now, you guys made in, a, uh, in conjunction with, it was Blue Star? Blue Startups. Blue Startups. Okay, so Blue Startups. And um, one of the things we were talking about before we hit record was you found a lot of value in the accelerator process. And, you know, we have had listeners in, what, 120 countries and one thing I'm pretty certain of is most of them probably have some accelerator programs. Now, what drew you to the accelerator program? And then I, I would actually like to hear how you ended up there, Ryan, because it sounded like you had a product that, that Zach, you had a pro product you wanted to build. Ryan, were you looking for something to dig your teeth into? Or? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what happened. You know, like any product, you know, minded person in the, in the Bay Area or in Silicon Valley, I wanted to build something cool. So... What had actually happened was I had known um, actually Zach's advisor, who I had know, know I didn't know that he knew Zach at the time, but I was reaching out to him for a couple of, you know, throwing some ideas by him, just seeing what he thought of it, because I was just out of college, um, you know, getting into app development, and uh, Jeff, the 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 advisor that um, is mutual between me and Zach, um, he mentioned that Zach had a auto startup that it was just, you know, starting out, coming out of the uh, Blue Startups Accelerator. And, hey, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to come into a business that's already, you know, has the idea there. And, you know, if you want to be a, a great product person, you have a business that is actually, you know, can go somewhere. So I said, you know, what, let me join Zach. And uh, kind of the rest is history. Um, that's when I started, you know, managing the, uh, the, the engineering team and uh, really, you know, making this product go. Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of history, we set some history today. Uh, the guys from Sully Automotive first 
guests that are not Kansas City-based startups. That's true. They're yes. here in the office, but they're they actually are. from they're outside. They are here in the office, of, but yeah. outside. That yeah. is surprising so, to me. Well, you know, we, we're big advocates of, of supporting local. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a lot of really bright people around here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and honestly, we just don't do a lot. We don't like the quality of a phone interview in a lot of cases. So it's easy for us to, you know, start. Um, and then we've been kind of lazy. We, uh, you might even be the first guest in about 15 episodes. And I think that's true, too. Yeah. You know, I put Matt in charge of scheduling guests. and I do all the shit you don't want to do. You do it all, <laughs> Matt. And that's important. So Actually, I don't do it. So we've spent a lot of time in the past talking about the value of having a great partner and, and in mm-hmm. certain cases like technical versus non-technical. So, Zach, are you the non-technical or are you guys both technical on some level? I would be considered non-technical. Okay, good. thank you. Join the club with me. It's okay. Hey, we're, we're people too, Matt. I, I'm just the technical guy looking for something to do. I know. You're also the new IT guy at Full Scale, which thank you for that. <laughs> but I have some complaints to file. And okay. can you help me turn my email on? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, so. That's all we do, just uh, fix computer problems. Yeah, totally. I mean, so, so that's Zach, important. Yeah. When, when you decide you want to start a software company as a non-technical person, what, what was your thought process there? Is that, is that a scary proposition to say, I'm going to go start a software business? Yeah, and that's why I felt like an accelerator program would be really value add because think of it as almost like an accelerated MBA program, but focused on startups where they're going to have instructors come in and talk about business development, accounting, legal, technical and they kind of combine it into like a three to four month program and let's break that down because i think this is really useful for our listeners so let's even take it back so you know you need some help how did you how did you go about finding an accelerator what what was the process you went through for the whole thing yeah sure whole nine yards so like anyone you start your search on google and you look at different accelerator programs and you know some of them they want companies with a little more traction or they want you to already have, you know, a technical co-founder, while others, they're open to earlier stage, kind of ideation stage startups. And I applied to, you know, several different programs, and I got into Blue Startups and a couple other accelerators, but I felt like, you know, Blue Startups was really interesting because I was in the early stages of, you know, building out Selly, and it's actually based out of Hawaii. So kind of isolated from, you know, the Bay Area, good, you know, way to kind of think about your product, small market to kind of test in. So the accelerator was in Hawaii? That's right. So you spent three or four months in Hawaii? Unfortunately, I did. I'm in. Brian, he's from Hawaii. I am. Okay. And that's our mutual connection right there. Yeah. Okay. Well, Hawaii. Doesn't aloha mean hello and goodbye? It sure does. Yeah, there you go. I am the linguist when it comes to Hawaiian. You know, Matt and I tried to, uh, we had some of our employees attempt to teach us Filipino. Um, I know that I am not ever going to be very good at speaking it, but Matt, didn't you have some, what drop some knowledge on I've learned a few things, learned a few things, yeah. I know a few Hawaiian words, too. We were going to have the first international speaking bee. Where we were going to compete, we were going to, you know, have our employees say something, then we were going to make it a contest. And then, much like many things in our life, we got busy because our business is growing. Speaking of that, yours seems to be doing all right with that. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, I think we've run a pretty good capital efficient business to get to where we are today. You know, we have some really exciting partnerships as well. And, you know, we're growing our dealers every month. 
So a lot of the folks that listen to this are early stage. They may, might not have even started anything. Some of them are just hoping to come up with it. Um, what were some of the things that you learned? You know, when you look back at it, there's things that were easier than you thought they would be. They were harder than they'd be. And then there are certain things that just like, wow, I didn't even think about this and whatever. What were some of the, the, the roadblocks or the things that you learned? Drop some advice on, on for, for our listeners. Oh, man, I got a lot. Well, one thing that a lot of startups... <laughs> Welcome to the globe. <laughs> a lot of startups think about is, you know, lawyers are expensive. Let me get a cheaper lawyer. I, I promise you... Get a quality attorney because if they do something wrong, it could end up, you know, biting you in the ass a couple months, years down the, you know, way. And I would say make sure you hire a really good attorney, even if it costs a little more upfront. It's a good investment. Did you have some bad legal advice that cost you? Or? Uh, yeah, we had a situation early on. It's you know been resolved since then, but it ended up costing two to three times what it would have cost just to get a good, little more expensive attorney from the start. Gotcha. Uh, another thing that I've learned, kind of non-technical um, founder, would be that development takes a lot longer than you anticipate. Yeah. Ryan can chime in <laughs> I, uh, and definitely. I keep, I tell Zach every week, you know the. You, your, your your deadlines and your um, your schedules are kind of off there. You know, maybe look, maybe all, look at all, two to three all times. non-technical co-founders know exactly how long it should take and when you're behind. <laughs> you know, that's uh, but, that, but that's not always the worst thing. Sometimes pushing a goal doesn't. Oh matter, yeah. But yeah. if goals are never attained, then they just kind of <clears> become <throat> ignored. Everything takes two weeks. Another thing, I think, cutting your losses sooner. You know, sometimes as early stage founders, you might think, well, you know, if we wait a little longer, maybe this employee will turn around, you know, they'll show some better results. You know, if you notice something off, let's say in the first 30 days, there's a good likelihood 90 days later, that problem is going to be amplified and it's going to be a lot more expensive for you. And you're going to build that relationship even further. So it's going to be harder to remove the Band-Aid, if you will. Yeah, and especially I found my twin. <laughs> Sounds like me, yeah. And especially that that is amplified in a startup as well. When yeah. you are trying to run a very capital efficient business, um, you know, if you if you let something go on for too long, when you probably know that you should make a change, that could end up costing you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And if you're if you're bootstrapping, yeah. that's a lot of money to just let, you know go down the drain. So, is there any specific example of of cases where there was there was something that was a problem that you had to act quickly to to change? Well, I'll give you an example. Earlier on, um, we were looking at customer support in the Bay Area, which is more expensive. And we hired a CSM who we thought would work out. But what we realized was this CSM was having difficulties dealing with aggressive type A alpha male car dealership clientele. What are you talking about, Zach? <laughs> and in retrospect, it would have probably made sense to, you know, cut the line earlier. So that would be one example. Yeah. And and, and also for the technical perspective, not just the non-technical, you know, things with like features, um, you know, you, you should try to release um, features as early as possible and get feedback on the early stage of them. Um, rather than trying to build a perfect feature that takes you know three times the amount of time and realize that it's not even used very much, so mm -hmm. I think you know there, there's lessons to be learned for cutting losses both on the uh, the um, product end as well as the um, the, the non-product end. And to kind of piggyback off that, Ryan, you know one thing we see with car dealers, you might have one dealership 
they have a unique way of doing business and they might put a ton of support tickets in requesting for a specific feature, you know, saying it's going to make a difference in your whole dealer base. But in actuality, it's that one dealership who wants that one specific feature and being able to understand, you know, this is one customer. If we do this, it's going to impact you know, 90% of the other dealers, and they don't want that specific feature. And that's the battle with with all software products. We've talked yeah. a lot about that uh, today and uh, as we've been chatting. And, um, you know, if, if you do every single thing your users ask you to do, every little product feature, then eventually the product becomes kind of unwieldy, mm-hmm. right? And it's all about having a, a simple experience. You know, Twitter is sort of Twitter on purpose, right? Like it's dead, simple, stupid, and they'll do anything to prevent it from being that way. And um, but some products, like usually enterprise products, complicated products, uh, VIN solutions became that way. It had so many levers and switches that nobody knew what any of the levers or switches did. And it was just impossible to support and figure out how to configure. So those are hard lessons to figure out. Yeah. Can't please everyone. No. And I would I, I <laughs> joked about this earlier, yeah. and I'll, I'll say it again. Like One of my favorite things to tell people is like, I'll make the software do whatever you want if you buy the company. <laughs> right that was just yeah. my favorite line like so it still is it is yeah i said that to you once and then you bought half my company and now now i gotta work with you every day get to work i know so <laughs> i have a problem i need to solve so i started a podcast with this guy that i know he's making me do all the work well how do i get out of that <laughs> you can ask for a raise I now uh, what is this? Are we I'll getting, double your pay. Are you getting paid right now? I'll, I'll double are your you pay. Getting paid? Have you been getting paid this whole time? Um, my point here is actually a little intentional. Like you guys realized at some point you were a good fit as partners. And what were the things that you identified? And the reason I bring this up is we had some discussion around the office lately, not really about the, you know, the, it's it's easier to get rid of your wife than it is your business partner. Yeah. And it can and, <laughs> and that can be have a really profound effect on the business. Now, you know, Matt, I, I take back everything I said. I really enjoy working with you. I mean, even though you make me do most of the work, you make me feel important about doing it. So it's Okay, it's, I'll triple your pay. Thanks. <laughs> God, if I could just make one dollar, then that would be all right. You know, there was a day when you said you'd work for one Bitcoin a month. That was when it was 20 grand. And I also was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I grew up, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Will you still work for one Bitcoin a month? Do you remember when we thought we were going to make money off of Bitcoin? <laughs> Fuck you, Bitcoin. <laughs> um, It'll so, come back. Yeah, sure. Maybe. That's what they always say. Holder. Um, the funny thing was actually at the time when we recorded a, a Bitcoin episode, Matt had, did, had forgotten about half a Bitcoin that when he'd forgotten about it, it was what, like 500 bucks or something. And at the time it was worth like the price of a that, used, like a yeah. used Honda Civic. The half, so it had gone half of Bitcoin then was like nine, eight or nine grand or something. Yeah. So hopefully in like 30 years, I'll remember <laughs> that I've got like 50 grand worth of Bitcoin or something like that. Um, so speaking of not speaking of Bitcoin, so you guys realized things would be a good fit. Um, you know, one thing I'll point out, and it's hard to sometimes convey this through, you know, the radio vibe, but, and I mentioned to these guys earlier, I've been really impressed. Um, you guys are younger entrepreneurs and, you know, your your ability to, you, you you speak as if you have a lot more experience than the age might dictate. And that's a, that's a very, a, that's a, something you can't teach. Um, you guys both are like that. So with that, you probably realized you would be good business partners at some point. Was there a moment or like, I mean, how did that, how did that come down? 
Well, I mean, I think one thing that you look for in a co-founder or partner, you don't want someone to have the exact same skill set as you because you're just going to constantly butt heads. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Ryan's skill set was really complimentary. And I think the other thing is, you know, work ethic. Ryan has a fantastic work ethic. You know, we're not nine to fivers and anyone like that won't resonate with us, if you will. So I... No, I was going to say, no, Zach, you're the same way. You know, both of us have, we are fully kind of invested into the the work lifestyle that we've chosen for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's one thing that makes Zach and my relationship so good uh, in, in terms of business partnership is that, you know, I totally trust that Zach knows what he's doing with his work. And he totally trusts what I know, that, that I know what I'm doing. So there's not, there's not this constant like, oh, you know, I have to hope and wonder what Zach's doing on the sales and make sure that he's working or Zach doesn't have to say, oh, I, you know, I, is the product moving forward in the way that, you know, um, I think it should be doing, going. Um, Zach's totally, he totally trusts me. I, I totally trust him. And I think that's really what makes a partnership work is the mm-hmm. trust. I agree completely. We're screwed, Matt. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> no, I agree with everything you guys said. And I think it's important that, you know, nothing's worse than having, and this isn't directed at you because this is not about you, Matt, but having a business partner that, that like doesn't do anything or just mm-hmm. doesn't seem to care. And, you know, especially if you're focused on your vision and you want to work hard and you know, kind of feel tethered by that. And, you know, I had a situation like that at one point and it, it's just not very redeeming and uh, it, it's tough. And, you know, it's hard to get out of. So. Yeah, and I, I had that situation in my last my last company too, where my the original the original guy I founded the company with at some point in time, just like it had to end, the relationship had right. to end. And right. It's difficult. It's painful. Well, we were even talking when we were in Cebu, like on the flip side of that, it's amazing what you can get done when you have like the right team. Like mm-hmm. yes. and you know, like for example, like Matt and I, like, I mean, there's just we have a good dynamic because this is very selfless. It's not like, Hey, I did this. It's like, there's just things that need to be done and people start taking those off the list. Or sometimes it's also about just kind of understanding like, okay, I just see someone needs some help, you know? And that, and that's a tough thing too. Cause you know, if you work hard, you're always willing to take on more and more mm-hmm. and more. And I can do more and do more. But sometimes I did that a while back. I was like, dude, I need help. Not necessarily for Matt, I just need a particular touch of admin or certain things with that. So, and now okay. you're on a heater. I know, man. And the thing is, I can't get up from the table because I'm just like, I'm going to sell. We the got table. you too much help. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I kept saying, if I get the right amount of help, I'll start actually selling things, which is what I like to do. Um, and you know, that is kind of an important component of most businesses. Yes, I know is. that you're on the no revenue model. Well, I know your daughter figured it out. Like yes. she's, she's got the customer song down. It's really funny. Cause, uh, Colleen called me last night. That's our director of operations in Cebu. I was like, mm-hmm. Hey, you want to see something cool? And I asked my three, if you ask my three-year-old daughter, what does every business need? She will shout customers. Yeah. And I didn't, she knew that somehow. <laughs> and then, and then I found her singing a song about it. Um, okay. So. Silicon Valley. Mm. Woo! It's got a lot of hype around it. Yeah, probably got a lot of stereotypes and other stuff. First off, thanks for coming all the way out to Kansas. Oh, um, definitely. So, you know, the, and, and we really do appreciate that. It's This has been fun and interesting. But so stereotypes. Um, what are some that we might believe that aren't true? Or I'm, I'm afraid to ask what people in Silicon Valley Gosh. think about Kansas. I mean, everyone has this impression that, you know, Silicon Valley is full of 
vegan, you know, scooter riding, plaid shirt wearing, you it's know, not your wearing. I mean, we it's not your wearing. wearing. <laughs> <laughs> true. true. Beyond plaid shirts. Yes. yes. But it's not? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about Silicon Valley, there's, you know, so much diversity. There's so many different, you know, interesting companies. There's biotech, there's SaaS, you know, there's consumer products. You know, there's uh, some really big universities out there, Stanford, Berkeley. So you have a mix of everything. It's not all, you know, tech yuppies. And I think there definitely are, you know, some companies and startups that, you know, fit that stereotype. And then, you know, I think a lot of people watch the TV show Silicon Valley, and that's kind of their idea of, you know, what Silicon Valley is like. But in reality, you know, there are some companies where that might, you know, be similar, but for the most part, it's probably a less a lot less glamorous than you would imagine yeah yep how do you guys afford to live there roommates i was gonna say do you have a second job outside (laughs) your startup because that's the thing that's blown my mind you know both matt and i know people on on either coast or whatever and i think the thing that anyone in you know i know some people in manhattan some people in california they're always just enamored with how affordable it is here they're like wait a minute your rent isn't nine million dollars a month for 80 square feet. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's kind of funny. When I moved out from Atlanta um, to the Bay Area, first of all, I was in the suburbs in San Mateo and my uh, complex was like near the highway and it was the price of, you know, a house, you know, per month rent uh, in the suburbs. Like it, it was unbelievable. And that's a common topic, you know, out in Silicon Valley, price of rent, price of housing. Well, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, I, I see it in news feeds and stuff like that. And there's actually like, uh, I was noticing uh, um, Josh from Mycroft, who's, uh, you know, spent some time out there. And they're also here in Kansas City was saying, I'm over it. I'm coming back home. It's just so expensive to live there. And, and you know, I used to work for a company that's out in, uh, in L.A. when I worked for Roland. And they were always enamored. They're like, wait a minute, your house only costs $250,000. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of nice. But, yeah, I, I, I still don't understand how everyone affords to live out there. I mean, meaning just like the normal, regular guy. Like, where do the people that work at the grocery store work? Or where do they live? And, you know, and, and you know, seeing some, uh, what's it, BART? That's the train. Like, people yeah, take yeah, three-hour yeah. rides in from rural places and whatever. Okay, so mm-hmm. is it hard to compete? Like, are you, is it hard to find help? Do the big companies suck everybody up? Yeah, I would say, you know, with developers, there's a lot of large companies, you know, Google's, Facebook's that will pay, you know, pretty high salaries. So it's hard to find, you know, development talent just because of the competitiveness. Then I think one interesting thing that we learned, you know, it's not the right place for building your CSM team. You know, just due to the cost of living, you're going to have to pay a lot more for customer support manager than you know, let's say Kansas City, for instance. So how have you guys been doing your software development then? I mean, so I think we talk about perceptions. The perception you, people usually have is that Silicon Valley has the best software developers in the world, and they must get like 10 times more work done than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, It must be like magical or something. You know, we've worked with both remote teams as well as, you know, Bay Area teams, and it's kind of a combination of the two. Yeah, you really do need um, a strong technical talent. I, I think, you know, as close to you as possible, maybe onshore, if not someone who knows the product, you know, in and out. But yeah, I definitely think that um, 
uh, a lot of Silicon Valley startups, not the top 10%, not, maybe not even the top 5%, are looking at other types of resources to get engineering done. Um, that's not to say that, you know, uh, onshore is, is, is totally the wrong way to go if you're in the Bay Area. But, you know, being a, you know, if you're a bootstrap startup or you're, you're on, on limited funds trying to be capital efficient, you have to look at other options as well. I heard of a local company around here that helps businesses scale. Yeah. I have too. What have you heard about them? Well, we started one. Oh. We did. Tell me about that. Well, do I have work to do? Yeah. I mean, we have the same challenges in Kansas City, right? Like there's not enough not enough developers. I mean, it's a universal problem. They're expensive and there's not enough of them. Yeah, we're about to publish an article on fullscale.io about exactly that and actually showing U.S. Department of Jobs labors. Like, I mean, it's not just something we're, we're making up. Like, the struggle is real. Um, I would imagine it's probably even tougher where you guys are at. I mean, that's a real problem here. It's not about you can't, you can't I mean, find the people to do the I mean, job. Lucky, lucky for us, we're not competing against Google mm-hmm. and Facebook and Apple. No, and but Uber we have some big companies here that suck up. We do. Cerner. We do. Cerner. Cerner and, and their 27 Garmin skyscrapers and Sprint around town. and H&R Block and these companies. But but it's still not Google and Facebook. Sure. And yeah. Right. But we also don't have the massive population here, yeah. too. So True. we scale it up or yep. down. Like it's, I mean, it's real. So how have you guys managed to make it work? I mean, you guys have mostly leveraged outside developers, right? Yeah, yeah, and and we have a, we've been working with this one remote team for quite a, quite some time, you know, since the beginning of Selly, and we've just built a really close relationship with them. We have you know daily standups, just like you would at you know with uh, your your onshore engineers, um, and it really does work for us. We've built a really close relationship, and they they know our product, and um, they know how. I, the, uh, the the head of product, likes to give out requirements to them, and, and it just works really well. So you guys been doing, you guys been doing software development on the product now for like three years, three years, nine months now. And so, and, and all of it has basically been done that way, right? With a remote offshore team. No, uh, we've also had you know in-house developers as on well. and off, mm-hmm. through, yeah, through over time, right? Okay. Um, and they've definitely contributed. But the main, uh, I guess, you know, the main. Uh, product was built yes by the the remote team okay yeah we were talking about stereotypes and you know we've spent a lot of time talking lately about some of the stereotypes that exist about development teams and developers that aren't necessarily here in the country with you um i think one of the ones that i spent a lot of time trying to to break down is that you know the economic conditions are different in these other markets and and because someone is willing to do a job for a lower price because they have a lower cost of living it doesn't mean that you're getting a terrible quality that goes with oh, it yeah. have you found that there's value and oh yeah i mean absolutely i you could even compare it in the us like so I- .NET developer in San Francisco might be 120,000 in Idaho, somewhere like that. Maybe they're 50, 60,000. And then offshore, maybe they're, you know, 20,000 a year, 15,000 a year. And it's really the individual person. It's communication. Communication, I think communication is the biggest part of it, because even if someone's in the Bay Area, and they don't have good communication, yeah. you know, you could you could be in just as uh, tough of a situation mm-hmm. as working with someone who's in India or Philippines. Yeah. Or yeah. So being that you work mostly with a remote team, you got any good tips for our listeners about how to deal with a remote development team? Well, I, I would say that, you know, there's a stereotype out there that a lot of startups you need to have uh, that, that all-star coder. Um, that's not necessarily the case, I don't think. Um, you need to have someone who knows the ins and outs of the product, 
and can communicate requirements to you know engineers. Uh, but if you're really good at communication and you find a team that really trusts you and you trust them, then as long as maybe you kind of uh, adjust to their hours or have their hours adjust to you, it's not much different than having them you know in house. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you don't talk to them as much. You can't just like shout across you know the room to them, yeah. but um, communication really is key in building trust. And the only way you can do that is by making sure that you, the product owner, um, really sets the tone, gives them good requirements, really shows them the vision of the product and they're really close to the product. So you don't have to be a coder. And, I, and, and all those things are true if the developer is right down the hall, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's still all about communication. Yeah, right? That's what I always say all yeah. the time. If they don't understand why they're doing it, what they're doing, what the end result's supposed to look mm-hmm. like, what not to do, all those sort of things, then they spend a lot of time writing code that nobody uses. Well, I think mm-hmm. for some of the one of the things that I learned several years ago is also make sure they understand like what it's supposed to do, not like not just like hey, make this appear on a screen, and when you click this button, it sends an email. Like even a little deeper explanation of why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, if you understand what something's supposed to do past just the basic documentation on it, it makes it a little easier to uh, take a little ownership in building it yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that we do as well that helps with communication and the whole understanding of the industry as well with um, these offshore developers is having them speak to our customer support agents on almost a daily basis. So they'll relay some of the issues that are going on, not just to me, but directly to the engineers. So they know what kind of use cases are coming up that maybe our customers are having or something, some features that yep. they want to have implemented. They'll talk directly with customer support yep. and sales. Don't keep and, them in the dark. They yep. got to know everything. They got to know everything. Yep. So do you guys want to share how you do customer service too? Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So we actually went outside of the Bay Area in terms of customer support, you know, just due to the costs. And, you know, we leverage really a cost-efficient call center. And the way we hold them accountable and have transparency, number one, we use Zendesk. All the calls are recorded inbound, outbound. We have um, really specific procedures in terms of onboarding them scripts to follow. Another thing that we leverage is a call center kind of screen share where we can see everything they're doing, you know, check in with them, hold them accountable. And that's allowed us to, you know, support high touch customers being used car dealerships who have, you know, high turnover rates, need retrainings at a lower price point compared to our competition. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing. There's, is it, how many of you are in your office in San Francisco? So two to three of us, we have someone who's also in Atlanta and comes out to okay. San Francisco. So it's just amazing. Your, your yeah. development team is remote. Your customer service team is remote. You know, sales is team. Atlanta as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you guys make it work. baby. It's global. Yeah, that's a good thing. Speaking of communication, how can that, so... How can we get a hold of you if we want to use Sally Automotive? It's Sally Automotive. It's S-E-L-L-Y automotive.com. Yeah. There are some other options or anything we need yeah, to know it's about? Sally, like Sellicar Automotive.com. We have a Twitter page, Facebook page. I'm active on LinkedIn. Go to a lot of the dealership conferences as well. So we make it so it's very easy to get a hold of Sally as a company or Ryan or myself. It's Ryan or Zach at SellyAutomotive.com. Uh, I heard call him at home. <laughs> maybe not. No, maybe not. So for those of you get, you know, if you're thinking about building software, 
go check out their website, S-E-L-L-Y-Automotive.com. They do a really great job of presenting what they're selling and defining that. Uh, I found it to be very clean and organized. Uh, you, did, you guys did a great job with that. Like your demo videos. Yeah, that, nice. that's you, a big difference. You look like you're in the business of what you say you're in the business of doing. And I, that's a big thing for me because I think a lot of people get past that. They want to build stuff. And you got to sell something too. So. Yeah. One approach that we've taken, you know, a lot of our competitors, they want to get a car dealership on a demo call before they're even going to talk about pricing. We have pricing on our website. We have the demo videos on our website. We're all about, you know, transparency, making it really easy for the customer to do their due diligence before even getting on a demo call with us. So that's our take. Yep. Yeah. And that's the same thing with Stackify. We, We try and be low touch and high volume. It's all out there. Everything you want to know about the product, it's there. I will not use your product if you make me have to watch a demo, talk to someone or do whatever without telling me what the price is. If you won't put the, yeah. some indication, mm-hmm. just give me a hint. You don't. You can say this could change, but don't, you know, that, that drives me nuts. We've talked about that with different, yeah. I'm trying to find a new something to do this. Well, they're all over. Yeah, but these first eight, they, won't, they want me to do a demo. Well, and then like I, I did one with, uh, oh, it was a real popular AB optimizely mm-hmm. I, you know we we they don't have yeah. their pricing so we got on the phone with them and basically the point of the call for them was to figure out if we would spend fifty thousand dollars a year or not and that was the end of the call <laughs> i was like you could have just put on your website that it was expensive as shit and i wouldn't have went <laughs> yeah. further than you this, right yeah, like, and they and they didn't do do anything to build the value on that 50k they just wanted to ask oh it doesn't even matter it was just way out of the price range like it didn't matter if it like shit golden eggs i wasn't gonna buy it like it was just too expensive <laughs> can i borrow 50 grand no why? I don't know. Can you shit gold eggs? Maybe if you get right. 50 grand, I will work <laughs> the model through. We'll see if we can get validation on everything. Hey, guys, thanks for coming to Kansas City. Yeah, thanks for having us. Did you, did you get some barbecue for lunch? Yeah. Where'd, dude, you, guys, where'd you go? Where'd where, you go? Where, do you guys remember where you went? I don't remember Joe's. The name. Joe's. <laughs> Joe's, Joe's barbecue. It used to be Oklahoma Joe's, and they had no restaurants in Oklahoma, and now they are Joe's of Kansas City. They do have restaurants in Oklahoma. Did uh, they have they the do, men? Yeah. Are they a Joe's of Oklahoma there? Uh, they're Oklahoma Joe's. I think it's weird that, that Kansas City's most famous barbecue became Oklahoma Joe's. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a Jack Stack guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, you're, you guys still have time. You're here yeah. for a couple of days. You well, can really take it all in. Um, there's you got to pace yourself. You, you get the meat you, sweats. You get the itis. The meat sweats. You just want to take a nap afterwards. <laughs> so it is, it's a real thing. So, well, guys, uh, great. You're doing a great job. Um, keep it up. If you guys that are listening get a chance, check out their website. It's a great example of where you can take your business. If you need help scaling your business, growing it, doing whatever, you can email Watson at fullscale.io. That's right. Your turn. That's right. It's your turn. All right. I'll do all the shit you don't want to do. You know what's really awesome is like I've been getting a lot of contact form emails. I got three. Wow. In the last I mean these are people that are interested in full scale. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well one of them was looking for a job. He said he'd work real cheap. So I'll definitely follow up on that one. Okay. Um, no, but, uh, people interested in building, uh, you know, products and they have ideas and want to talk about it. And look, if you guys reach out, you will get a response. Okay. Mm-hmm. This, this, I can guarantee, um, at least from Matt, because, <laughs> you know, Matt likes to definitely talk to anyone and everyone, but no, if you, uh, if you inquire, we will give you a reply, um, can help you with the creative needs, with your development needs, maybe on Sundays, just your personal needs. 
Um, you know, we got maybe. To, well, Matt, you were laying on the couch in my office. I was. When you came out. Yeah. So we should probably get to that because as your business partner, I want you to be happy. I feel that if you're happy, you'll be more productive and we might actually get paid. Okay. Someday. All right. See you next time. Mahalo. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit StartupHustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.